0: Seat of a bench and striking it with his right foot and then his left, pushed off from the top of the seat back and sailed like a deer over the soot darkened park wall. Knowing extremely well the ground ahead, he put everything into his leap and stayed in the air so long that the doorman and little boy felt the pleasure of flying. The effect was marvelously intensified by the fact that, because of their perspective, They never saw him touch down. He does that almost every day, the doorman said. Even in the dark, even when the bench is covered with ice, even in a snowstorm. I saw him do it once in a heavy snow, and it was as if he disappeared into the air. Every goddamn morning. He looked at the boy. Excuse me. And in a suit, too. The little boy asked the doorman. Does he come back that way? No, he just walks up the street. Why? Because there's no bench on the other side of the wall. The doorman didn't know that as a child, Harry Copeland had lived at 333 with his parents, and then with his father after his mother died, before he went to college, before the war, before inheriting the apartment, and before the doorman's tenure though this doorman had been watching the weather from under the same steeply angled gray canopy for a long time. In the spring of 1915, the infant Harry had dreamt his first dream, which he had not the ability to separate from reality. He, who could barely walk, was standing on one of the glacial whale-backed rocks that arch from the soil in Central Park. Suddenly, By neither his own agency nor his will, as is so often the lot of infants, he was lifted, though not by an invisible hand, and conveyed a fair distance through the air from one rock to another. In other words, he flew. And throughout his life he had come close to replicating this first of his dreams, in leaping from bridges into rivers or flying off stone buttresses into the turquoise lakes that fill abandoned quarries, or exiting airplanes at altitude, laden with weapons and ammunition. His first dream had set the course of his life. Because he was excellently far-sighted, no avenue in New York was so long that the masses of detail at its farthest end would escape him. Over a lifetime of seeing at long distances, he had learned to see things that he could not physically see, by reading the clues in fleeting colors or flashes, by close attention to context, by making comparisons to what he had seen before, and by joining together images that in changing light would bloom and fade or rise and fall out of and into synchrony. For this fusion, which was the most powerful technique of vision, it was necessary to have a prodigious memory. He could replay with such precision and intensity what he had seen, heard, or felt that these things simply did not lapse from existence and pass on. Though his exactitude in summoning texture, feel, and details could have been bent to parlor games or academics, and in the war had been made to serve reconnaissance, he had realized from very early on that it was a gift for an overriding purpose. And this alone. For by recalling the past and freezing the present, he could open the gates of time and through them see all allegedly sequential things as a single masterwork with neither boundaries nor divisions. And though he did not know the why and wherefore of this, he did know, beginning long before he could express it, that when the gates of time were thrown open, the world was saturated with love. This was not the speculation of an esthete or a theory of the seminar room, for this he had seen with his own eyes, even amid war, darkness, and death. To see and remember life overflowing and compounding upon itself in such vivid detail was always a burden. But that may, He was able to carry it easily. Though a bleak, charcoal-colored winter had been followed by an indeterminate spring, by June the beaches would be gleaming and hot, the water cold and blue. The streets would flood with sunlight and the evenings would be cool. Women had emerged from their winter clothes, and one could see the curve of a neck flowing into the shoulders, actual legs exposed to the air and a summer glow through a white blouse. In the weeks before the solstice, it was as if, moving at great speed toward maximum light, the world had a mind of its own. It clung to a reluctance that would slow it as the brightest days began to grow darker. It is perhaps this hesitation at the apogee that lightens the gravity of...